The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. So today we have the privilege of speaking with Stephen Dynan, who is right now in Cleveland, having participated and had a front row seat in the Republican National Convention. And we are just, we can't wait to hear how that went for him. Now, Stephen is an author of a very timely book just been released called Sacred America, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All. Sacred America, Sacred World. And, you know, that's a very interesting concept. We're going to have Stephen really dive into that for us. Stephen is a noted social entrepreneur. He is quite a visionary. I've known him for a few years, and he does see the world differently than most people. Lucky for us. We need people like that so that we don't get stuck. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. That's great to have you here. So you are in Cleveland today, huh? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I really, in writing the book, Sacred America, Sacred World, one of the deepest principles is that we need to relate to our our political differences more as a source of strength and creativity and to do so with civility and respect. And ultimately, I, I use the term political cross-training. So even though I'm a progressive by temperament and, and historically, I've been very involved in, in what's called the transpartisan movement, which is looking to ground ourselves in, in a space beyond partisan labels and, and really uplift the dialogue. So I was here partially for my own deep exposure and also to speak in some uh, an event at the Purple Tent, which was a, a like-minded initiative to bring together uh, people from the right and the left and look towards finding higher common ground together. So it's been, it's been really fascinating to be here. And, um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of surprising things as well. I bet. I bet. You've had some interesting conversations there. So let's go back a bit to this whole subject, Sacred America, Sacred World, fulfilling our mission in service to all. So what mission and whom are we speaking about when we're saying to all? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, so first of all, the reason for the title is really to bring together two realms that we often think of as, as separate. So spirituality is often more of an inward realm. It's, it's where we have our place of deepest reverence and love and, and respect and honor. And America is primarily, we think of it more politically, even if we're patriotic, it's sort of a more of a political concept of being a country. And so bringing those two together is is uh, at first for some people a bit like oil and water, but the actual truth is that when we relate to our country in a more sacred way, it opens up the possibility to evolve more quickly and achieve 
achieve something far better. And on the, you know, I think that relating to America in a sacred way, in some ways comes more naturally to the right uh, than to the left, which can sometimes be more focused on ways that we've fallen short of our ideals. And um, so, so what I'm saying is, is that the sacred America is like, it's really an activation of a vision and a, and a pathway to evolve our country to the next level. I talk about the shift from being revolutionaries to being evolutionaries, where we're all in this together. We're all essentially incarnate to work together to fulfill a higher collective mission, which is mm-hmm. uh, something I see, I see depicted in things like the Constitution in order to form a more perfect union. Uh, a more perfect union is a nice, succinct way to describe a society that really works for mm-hmm. all. It's a, a template, if you will, for enlightened society. Also see it in e pluribus unum, which is, means out of many, one. And that's far more than a motto. It's really a mission to lead towards larger wholes. So this sense of unity at the core of who we are is really important because we're tasked with holding an enormous diversity of viewpoints and religions and cultural t- traditions and languages. It's where a melting pot of world cultures, and that's part of why, uh, part of the source of our strength and our dynam- economic dynamism. But then we, that unity can get frayed and we get more and more um, localized in, in smaller groups and tribes. And so there's a lot of tribalism going on right now where we're turning into the red tribe versus the blue tribe and the yeah. elite yeah. versus the masses and the, you know, black yeah. versus white. And, you know, I, and I think it's becoming more visible, which is kind of interesting because as our um, norms have started moving toward a more equal um, between gender, more uh, accessible between um, ethnic groups and backgrounds and, you know, opportunity that is attempting to be equalized. What has come to light is more of the segregation, more of the Mm -hmm. discrimination, whereas even though it was existing for many, many years, when different groups simply accepted that as the norm and didn't push back on it, no one really created conflict around it, right? We mm-hmm. had big events. We had the civil rights movement, et cetera. And, you know, there, made, there were small changes that we saw. But as, it, as things actually became, there was more demand for equality, this is kind of where the pinnacle of the conflict is showing up. And, you know, is, do you think that this is a tipping point for not only the U.S., but for the globe? Mm-hmm. Well, one of my, the things I talk about in Sacred America, Sacred World, is that we are on the cusp of the transition into a truly global era. And it's, we're being forced into it, whether we like it or not. We have globalized finance, we have globalized media, globalized Internet, uh, globalized trade, travel, is we live in a globally interconnected world. So we have to shift a whole range of things about how we think of ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's why the title of the book is Sacred right. America, Sacred World, because we're entering into right. this global world, and we have to globalize our consciousness as well. But in the process of that, it often creates a, a reaction and a, and a tendency to want to go backwards to the old identities, the old, mm-hmm. you know, the old truisms, the old tribes, the, the old value systems. And I, and I think in times like this, you have to kind of, we have to straddle these two different forces. One is to honor 
truly, deeply, the blessings of what we've inherited. And that's something a lot mm-hmm. of people get wrong, who I think who are change agents. I've gotten wrong myself in many different ways when I was younger. It's like I can sometimes see the more conservative forces as somehow being opposed to the necessary mm-hmm. progress to more of a global era. But in actuality, I really feel like the, there's a complementarity. It's almost like left and right are two wings of the American eagle, and we need both of them to mm-hmm. fly. And so, so there's a way that those, the deeper roots uh, and what we've inherited needs to be honored for its sacred qualities. And we also have to do the work that requires what have, what's been incomplete, what is, what is the stuff we haven't faced. And so we're getting a, a, an upsurge of the things that have been either tamped down or suppressed in different ways, or, or the resentments, the fears around globalized trade, around minorities, around other religions. So we're getting an exaggeration, but I think it's a reflection of the, essentially society is being forced now to go to this next global America, what I call America 7.0. So I trace from the founding through about you know, six major upgrades to our cultural operating system, and now we're really in the seventh, and that is into a global consciousness. So, you know, unless we start becoming transplanetary, that'll be like, this is the big one, and it triggers a huge countervailing um, reaction to it as well. So I, you mentioned the operating system, and we're at 7.0. I love the way that you describe this in the book because it really helps people understand the major shift points throughout our history. Can you just run through those quickly to give people a sense of how you have defined or what constitutes an upgrade? Yeah. So, I mean, when we originally, the founding Articles of Confederation, we had a very loose nation and most of the power was in the states. And so that was partially as a counterbalance to the centralized power of the king in England and the monarchy. And so we had more suspicion of the, the centralized power, but it turned out to be kind of unworkable. Everybody had different militias, different taxation systems. There wasn't any central common defense. It was kind of a mess, frankly. And so the Constitution came about as a 2.0. So 1.0 was a bit of a mess. 2.0 with the core constitution and then the Bill of Rights became the kind of like, okay, now we've got a real operating system for our country. However, there's a lot of compromises baked into those, including the fact that um, even though we had a principle of equality, we had slavery, we didn't have, women didn't have the right to vote. So we had to have two later waves that were pretty hard fought to bring both of those in. The whole uh, slavery question and abolition and eventually the Civil War was really all of grappling with this extending equality and, uh, to all of the races, uh, particularly slaves. And so it was a bloody hard process to upgrade to 3.0. Uh, it was a little less bloody. It was less bloody, but still pretty hard to fully integrate women into the into the public sphere and citizenship. And uh, so that's really more of a 4.0. Uh, 5.0, I see more as the uh, the New Deal legislation of FDR, partially in reaction to the uh, in, to the Great Depression, where we really we had so many people falling through the safety net. The functionality of government was no longer working to protect. There had been exploit, you know, the the way the financial markets just kind of went haywire, and so there needed to be more protective function for government to protect against the excesses of capitalism and actually protect those who are weakest, often like the retirees and the poor. So that kind of became an, another extension of of the operating system, if you will. And then, but then we still had a lot of the civil rights movements in the sixties that were required to kind of upgrade to more of a 6.0. And then I, and then I really put the 7.0 starting somewhere around, you know, 2000 where we're entering into a truly global um, internet era, which is taking us out of primarily seeing the world through our, the lens of our own culture. And we have boundaries on other cultures to really 
It's like the, the global playing field is so fast now and things move so rapidly that we actually can't think about things like security or, or uh, defense without actually thinking about the health of the entire world now. So we talk about in service to all. It's partially a reflection because we're in a globalized world now. We can't isolate ourselves from, from a lot of the pro- problems. You know, terrorism metastasizes, diseases metastasize, mm-hmm. economic contagion spread around the world. It's like we can't just be our isolated island and be healthy. We actually have to devote ourselves now to the larger good of the whole, the whole planet. So it shifts a bit the psychology where it's America overall, and we're just focused on building ourselves up to really saying, okay, America in service to creating a healthy planet, and that actually feeds back and benefits us as well. And so the spirit of nationalism that has really... Um, evolved and become front and center for many of the conservative constituents in the party, in, in sometimes both parties. Um, you know, this, this is about protectionism, right? This is about fear. And yeah. so when people, go, when people go into fear, they contract. And, but what you're saying is that people need to open and move toward um, things that they don't necessarily believe in or not necessarily comfortable with to learn about, you know, what may fit for them. Yeah, and embrace the beauty and challenges of this new era as... Um, as additive, you know, and so it means crossing divides. It means breaking out of boxes. And, and it, it, you know, I honor that that can be challenging for people. It's like, you know, my grandfather who, or my uh, step-grandfather, it's like he, he didn't like to eat any foreign food. He just wanted to have his meat and potatoes, and that's all he wanted to do. And mm-hmm. we would try to take him to a Thai food restaurant once, and he was just like, I don't even want to even try that. So there's, there's kind of <laughs> a, a deeply ingrained uh uh, and, and I think that it's important that we don't disrespect or dishonor that, too, because when people are disrespected or dishonored, they tend to contract even right. further. So it, that's this art form of creating change, and I think connects with your leadership themes, is how do we lead through inspiration and a kind of magnetism to create something better that's more alluring? And, it, and it, to some extent, it, cre- it requires being fully honoring of what already is. So that's where I say that if we want to like enter this new era, we actually have to re-honor this sacred principles on which America was built and re-honor our history and the breakthroughs we've made. It's, it's, um, and, and honor the, the, the conservative function within the society is often providing the stability and structure and, you know, laws and order that are actually healthy for a society to evolve, even while we're also, on the other hand, championing this, um, this next evolution as well. Mm. So tell me how you predicted this whole evolution so that your book was released just at the right moment. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I do, I'd make most of my big decisions by inner guidance. And so I, I had started this book 10 years ago. I made a good a bit of progress for over three or four years, just kind of on the side. And then I more or less shelved it while I was launching the shift network for five years. And then I just got a the really strong sense about a year ago it was time and I meditated on it and I got the sense July 5th of this year was the key, key date. And it was symbolic for the sense of 
part of global being in a global era is to is interdependence as well. So we're we're moving from independence into interdependence, and we have to have a healthy independence to be truly interdependent. But interdependent is a more mature stage of development for an adult or for a nation. It's it's to recognize that we are part of a larger whole and that we have to take care of and um, and uh, honor. Follow us on Twitter whole. at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo with my special guest today, Stephen Dynan. So, Stephen, leadership is a um, topic that's front and center these days, and in the work that both you and I do, we often um, are involved with leaders of large organizations, not just political leaders. And, you know, for years there has been attempt to be a shift in the way people at the top of organizations really view their whole organization as a system and view the individuals within that system as having a voice that's valued. And that's been a challenge in organizations for many leaders. Um, so how do you see, you know, the, those challenges shifting or being an influence on the whole political shift? Well, I think what we're seeing, I mean, essentially what you're pointing to is there's been a democratization of power in organizations, moved to, from a more authoritarian uh, approach to business mm-hmm. to more more of a democratic approach. It doesn't mean that, you know, frontline workers make all the decisions now. There's some, you know, experiments in more directions that way. But I think there is there is a value to hierarchies and, and different levels of responsibility depending on your skills. Mm-hmm. But if people don't feel they don't have, that they feel they don't have any say or any feedback loop, then they can feel uh, oppressed in their job, which doesn't bring out their their best and, and uh, inspire right. the next level of leadership. So, so in many ways, there's a democratic, there's a recognition that we have to have some de- level of de- democratic participation for a company to go to the next level, and then people feel more empowered that way. And uh, and that's true also in in our democracy. And the, and the challenge on in the democracy side is that there's a lot more upwelling of deep frustration because the special interests and lobbyists and big money have so taken over the public process that a lot of people don't feel that they have a say anymore or much of an effective say. And and there's right. studies that bear that out. And so so we're becoming like our. our Collectively, we're becoming a bit more like the old school corporations where people were just supposed to, 
you know, punch their time clock and shut up. And that, that triggers a lot of frustration because it's then there's not the ownership. So on both, both there's this, this need to design systems where there's a healthy form of democratic participation, not mob rule or sometimes, sometimes the, you know, masses don't always make good decisions either. And, and so that's a tricky mm-hmm. thing in a company. It's like if you, you put everything to a, a communal vote, you could probably, um, you could probably sink a, a lot of companies pretty quickly. So you have to kind of right. balance these different forces. And this is where um, a notion that I have in my book I think can be very helpful is the notion of political cross-training. And the principle here is that every every type of organizing system and value system has its own strengths and sometimes its weaknesses. So I think of like left and right as, as value systems that have cultivated certain virtues, but sometimes neglected other virtues. And so if we primarily locate in one, I tend to be more of a progressive, it can be helpful to cross-train with the other. So to give an example that's specific to me is like when I was, I first gave a shot at creating the shift network and didn't get traction, ran up 65,000 on credit cards, uh, ultimately had to pull the plug and uh, was really saddened by that. And at a certain point further down the road, I got the sense I needed to actually apprentice and learn from my stepfather, I mean, my father-in-law, who was uh, a conservative, successful Republican business guy. And he was pretty tough on me at first because he thought I was too much of a new age wimp. But, uh, but, but actually, he, um, <laughs> you know, he, he really groomed me in a different, a certain kind of way. And he had a more muscular Republicanism about him. And what that taught me is to reintegrate the strong masculine and to reintegrate fiscal discipline and phys- physical discipline and fiscal discipline. And, um, and so ultimately, that kind of training, taking in his value system and his insights, helped to strengthen me as a leader who had more of the a joke that I needed to in, integrate my inner Republican in order to become a successful business person. And it doesn't mean I really shifted my ideals of where we're going, but I recognized that I needed that training, that complementary training, if you will. And so I think the more that we can approach um, politics, almost like a training ground, who who really pushes our buttons, who, who really gets under our skin, who do we idealize, and see that they're all, in a sense, uh, projections out of a certain certain set of values, a way of being, mm-hmm. and to try to make peace with them at, at, at the basic level, and even then to see them as sources of learning and growth, the more, more we can integrate that and learn from that, mm-hmm. we actually integrate more of those values in ourselves, we become more well-rounded leaders, and we actually are better at designing systems, because a lot of times conservatives um, are better at hierarchy. Democrats can get too egalitarian in many different ways. Right. So, but, you know, and, and so there's ways in which each kind of complements each other. You ultimately, you want to be able to use a more um, uh, authoritative leader style, leadership style at certain times. And there's other times a more uh, consensus-based leadership style is going to be more effective. And so we've got a, a wider palette that we can draw upon if we, if we spend time integrating these different value systems. You know, it seems like in the last 20 years or so, uh, leaders have really taken a back seat to what their responsibility really is. And, you know, I call that the lack of leadership courage they are doing things like, well, you know, people don't want to do this, so I'm not going to make the case for it. Um, until there's a crisis when there's no time to make the case for it, they just make decisions and just go. And people are afraid when there's a crisis, so they don't argue about it. They just fall in line. And 
you know, when you see our politicians for the last 20 years putting all of these um, decisions into the voters' hands via the initiatives on the ballot, et cetera, and yet the politicians aren't willing to do what their job is, which is to be the one who can see the whole and have a really in-depth discourse with the entire body of politicians and with the citizenship, this has been an ultimate failure of leadership. And so, you know, a little bit of what we're seeing coming out in the last few months, certainly in the last few days, is the sound of leadership that is highly dictatorial and highly authoritarian. And so is this what is required to move from where we have been to making any shift? Well, I think that um, I think that if you see it as a as somewhat of a counter reaction to a lot of different forces at, at work, yeah. not necessarily the higher order integration that we're moving towards. I think what we're what we're moving towards is leadership that is flexible and and full spectrum. So there are times in an emergency that you want a completely authoritarian command and control system because Absolutely. that is like lives are on the line. Emergency. You want to have that that sucker like you know you you need to know people yep. are going to take orders, obey, and act. Boom. You right. know, so there are times, and that's why it works oftentimes in the military as well because those are often life right. or death situations. So we don't want to we don't want but it, but then you take that same leadership style and apply it in the wrong context and it can be a disaster. So we don't want leaders who are just one trick ponies. We need people who are able to flex their leadership style for different situations. And um, and that's where I think that, that that's what we're moving towards in corporate leadership and in political leadership, which which are the two kinds of leadership, uh, maybe along with kind of cultural movement building that uh, require the largest, uh, the biggest understanding of systems of people and 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 how to manage large systems. Um, so there's this kind of uh, so you want to move from be able to move across the whole spectrum. And so not to reject the authoritarian style, but to say it's, it's, it's got its function. It's just limited to certain realms and it's likely to, it's likely to create backlash over time if that's the only system you're using. And it will tend to, and it doesn't have the feedback loops that ensure that, that provide checks and balances as well. So there's some intrinsic dangers in, in using that too much. You know, when I, see change in leaders, it comes after some personal breakthrough. Um, I rarely see major change occur for leaders because they have suddenly understood a strategic perspective or suddenly understood um, the composition of a structure. The real change and transformation comes from the inside. And, you know, for example, when things touch them personally, when the example these days, um, you know, when there are um, LGBTQ issues and suddenly they realize, oh, my son or daughter is gay or transgender or suddenly it's now touching me This person, who may have been very much opposed to the rights to be assigned to these groups, 
is now saying, oh, well, that's my son or daughter, but I want to have the same opportunity. That they may have spent years arguing against that, and yet suddenly in that one moment, they know that it has to be different. And so, yeah. you know, that's, a, that's an extreme example. But, you know, in the work that... Well, I, mean, I think it's a perfect example. I mean, and, in many ways, the, the whole gay rights movement really built from, from the, the, the number of people who said they, they, they had a gay friend was almost yeah. exactly parallel to the curve of acceptance of gay rights. And so, the yeah. number, really, on the, on the deepest level, all the different um, you know, gay rights movement boiled down to how many people were willing to come out and just befriend people right. who were not just in the gay community. <laughs> because as soon as those friendships were formed, then, then the opinions changed. And I think that that's part of what we've forgotten. And why it's so important to cross divides with friendship, political yeah. divides, racial divides, economic divides. Because if we don't, then we, it's really easy to not have real empathy for that class of people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you use a quote um, from Mark Gerson. I love Mark. He's just great. Um, and you use a quote in the book, and I'm going to read that. It is, we must love our country so deeply and with such devotion that our internal enemies once again become fellow citizens and perhaps one day allies or even friends. The soul of our democracy depends on it. So quote, the yeah. key phrase there is internal enemies, right? The yeah. internal chatter or the internal fear that keeps us from not only our whole potential, but from seeing the whole potential. And so what, where, where are the breakthrough points besides each one person, one at a time, where are the breakthrough points that we can make happen? Well, I think it begins with the internal, and um, I'll give an example from my life uh, when you apply to the political arena. In 2008, when, um, when uh, Sarah Palin was the vice presidential candidate, she was really like nails on a chalkboard for me for a, a while, and I just found myself yeah. just, uh, like wanting to get aggressive with the television. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so instead of, instead of just remaining there, I actually took it on as a practice. I read both of her books cover to cover and really took this on and eventually uh, shifted. By the end of that journey, uh, I had a deeper understanding of who she was and something softened. She showed up in a dream and we actually hugged in the dream like old friends. And I mm-hmm. ended up writing a column for Huffington Post called Dissolving the Palin Prejudice that really um, mm-hmm. got a lot of fan mail from conservatives who felt seen and respected for, for the first time mm-hmm. from uh, progressives. So I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's an example of like how we there's an internal process that then we can share and inspire others. I've told that story in a lot of different contexts. It inspires a lot of people. I mean, usually I do a longer version. But then, um, so there's the internal. Then there's also just like be willing to show up and bridge divides. Um, like there's living room conversations now that have been activated by Joan Blades, who is one of the founders of Move On. And you say, get one progressive and one conservative you, that want to do this. You invite two friends each, and you have a structure for having a, a dialogue uh, that really goes mm. to the heart of some of the partisan divides and builds some human connection and understanding and really softens things. It might be crossing mm. a divide in terms of my, my wife has you know, got called to work in San Quentin, and that totally crossed a lot of racial and economic divides for her, and it's and yeah. that like really valuable and beautiful to do. So, um, you know, we're talking, we're 
it's not going to work for me this year, but we're going to send a small group to Iran this year, and I'm interested to go next year because there's so much polarization with Iran as a, as a people and a country, formerly part mm-hmm. of the quote, evil empire. And so I'm interested in bridging those things. So like just taking it on as a practice to see, okay, what bridges do I make me uncomfortable? I was in the Quicken Loans arena uh, for the for the Republican National Convention, and you know, as somebody who's been a lifelong Democrat and progressive, I at first was a little like, "Whoa, I felt like a double agent or something." What am I doing in here? <laughs> and, uh, but uh, but ultimately, you know, it's like you have. I had some real conversations with people, and and it was or and it, and it just felt like, okay, I'm here. This is normalizing something. I'm crossing a certain line, and I'm here to make new allies and to, and to, you know, reduce my own um, biases too. And so I could open up to a range of different people and perspectives. So I think that whatever, whatever, whatever our kind of particular zone of like, Oh, I don't want to go there just to gently lean into that. That's part so of it. What was the, what was the most surprising experience you had there? Well, I think, um, you know, I think that um, what was interesting to me is that there's a tendency with the spin of headlines to to focus on whatever the most uh, exaggerated aspect is, and you know, and the red meat and the chanting, chanting of like lock her up and that kind of thing. But right. there was a lot of real, there was a lot of real warmth in the evening too. There was a fellow named Tom something or another who was two before. Trump was introduced, who really was quite charming and warm. Um, he was a Lebanese man and been friends with Donald Trump for a long time and really humanized him in different ways and told more stories from his life. And he wasn't even off a teleprompter, which was pretty impressive and just had a very charming, funny way about him. And so those kind of more human things don't necessarily make the, make the news headlines or the spin doctors afterwards, um, which tend to focus on whatever is the most incendiary. So there's kind of a normalization and, you know, a lot of people are sitting around checking cell phones. They're not like all, chanting and frothing up. It's like they're trying to be, mm-hmm. you know, trying to participate in democracy. So did you see uh, any peer pressure going on there around the group that you might say was a bit more fervent um, than some of the others? I mean, it was pretty clear from, you know, watching on, on you know, the broadcast that, there were some people that were not participating in a lot of the chanting, et cetera. And I'm wondering, did that create any discomfort in the hall? You know, I was only there for the last night, so I didn't necessarily see how it, it, it built over the course of the week. Um, I think it probably depended on where you were. I was, I was in kind of one of the upper decks and uh, not down on the floor with some of the delegate, delegations. And I think things might have gotten a bit more contentious down there since those are the actual elected delegates. And I was more in a section of guests and, and media. So, um, so there wasn't – like there were – you know, there wasn't really peer pressure around me, but I, I would imagine mm. that it's stronger on the floor. Mm. So, you know, well, we need to take a break. So I have a ton of questions for you, but I'm going to hold those. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have more to talk about with Stephen Dynan. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations with Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest today, Stephen Bynum, the author of Sacred America, Sacred World, Fulfilling Our Mission in Service to All. So, Stephen, you know, we talk a lot about leadership, and my philosophy around leadership is that leadership is not a title. Leadership Mm -hmm. is the presence of who we are in each moment, and how we choose to act. And so leading oneself is the most important element of any kind of leadership. And so, you know, when I think about your whole premise of creating the movement, of participating in really making a shift, um, what are the things that, an individual can do. Not everybody can be part of a delegation to Iran or, you know, to anywhere, right? Right. I'm a big believer in, um, I mean, first of all, just integrating a sense of citizenship into however we think of leadership, that that's part of how we lead, is we lead by example. And to be full participants in our democracy is really essential, regardless of our political orientation. And I would encourage people to think about that in a number of different ways. First, first of all, to not focus just on electing people who think like us, but engaging our current elected officials. Um, so we've mm-hmm. been to D.C. a few times, and also in our local area, we've some citizen lobbying, I think, is, is really important. Also, just how we're, you know, whether it's writing a, writing a column or a letter to the editor or sharing on Facebook, to think about how to, how to contribute to the, our collective conversation in a way that's additive and isn't just kind of emotionally spewing uh, negativity or opinions, but really sort of enriching mm-hmm. the dialogue or advancing the dialogue. And so that's a kind of a thought leadership that I think is important. In order for us to do that, I think we have to be we have to be educated, and I encourage people to do some cross-training and not just get all their media from one source, because there's a tendency to get in an echo chamber when you're just getting your media from one direction, whether that's MSNBC or Fox News, and to spend some time, even if it, it can be a little dissonant, to first to, to, to look at what's coming on other sides. So I like to read a couple of more conservative articles every day since I tend to lean progressive, and, it, and that helps to enrich my thinking, deepen uh, my understanding, and also see where, where different people's concerns are. And I've been really actively thinking about how do we design transpartisan solutions that bridge left and right. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to expand our horizon. I, I also think it's just important to demonstrate leadership with small actions, 
give an example, every time there's a, uh, a new terrorism incident and Islamic, yeah. anti-Islamic sentiment rises, I like to go to Kiva.org, which is this great microfinance site, and yeah. then make a, make a loan, usually to people in Islamic countries, often women who are building small businesses, whether it's sewing or, um, you know, whatever they're, whatever they're doing. And I make just a $25 loan to somebody because it's my little signal to say, we love you, or I love you, care about you, want to see you thrive, uh, mm-hmm. and not, and, and minimizing some of the intense polarization that's often happening at a national level, level or in the media. So that might take me one, one or two minutes, but it's just a small signal, and there's lots of little things that we can do to cross whatever that divide is. Um, mm-hmm. We might organize a living room conversation with, if, if black and white issues are really up right now, we could do that with inviting an um, African-American friend or, or a white friend, if we're African-American, to, to just have a deeper conversation. I, I did that recently, and it was super, super healing and very beautiful to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's like these little, it's like having, being willing to have conversations with people. I've been, uh, because I went on the road a lot for the book, I've ended up talking very in-depth with a lot of uh, taxi drivers and Lyft and Uber drivers. And, uh, <laughs> and it's been really illuminating, you know, whether they're, I've talked to Muslims from Pakistan, immigrant from Pakistan to somebody who's Armenian, who has some strong anti-Islamic sentiment, right. partially because of history right. of genocide there. And to really right. cross some divides and take the time, whatever opportunities we have to do that. And it can be very illuminating and humanizing. So those are like the little acts of leadership. And, and then on the bigger level, I think there's a, there's a role for all of us to be helping to bring more innovation into our public sector. Uh, I advocated in my book for something called solutions councils that would happen from the local level all the way up to the national level where you could have a solutions council with citizen experts in different domains who are basically scanning for really innovative breakthroughs that are happening throughout society and then amplifying those and bringing them to the awareness of elected officials as a way to essentially catalyze more innovation. Because a lot of the conservative critique of government being slow and lethargic and bureaucratic, I think, has some validity to it. So bringing in the uh, bringing in a more innovative perspective on, on looking for what's really working and where, whether that's in you know, the Bank of North Dakota, which is a uh, a publicly owned bank and returns money to taxpayers and it's a really interesting innovation or something like Kiva.org or a local peace building program that, um, that, that has helped reduce gang violence. And so if we're helping to surface those things and bring them to the attention of our elected officials and amplify them, that's another level of, of leadership in the process, which isn't just about electing candidates that think like us. So I think that that's we, we've gotten a lot of energy caught up in well means to be political means to to focus on the elections, um, but mm-hmm. it actually to be politically engaged is more about exercising our our responsibility as citizens and to take these small opportunities for leadership um, day by day by where we shop, where we invest, how we speak, mm-hmm. um, and the bridges that we build. Well, you're talking about consciousness and being intentional with our actions and our words and our thoughts. And, you know, that's extremely counter to our soundbite culture that we have had for the last few years. It's as if uh, the entire country, if not the entire world, has attention deficit disorder. They cannot stand to focus on anything for more than a minute and a half. And so 
you know, what you're describing is requirement that people not only listen to one another, but have the capacity to want to understand and be willing to engage in conversations where they don't have a lot of information. And people want to be right and people want to be um, informed. And, and so when they are when they are confronted with the idea that they will sit down and talk to somebody about a topic that they are not schooled in, you know, there's big resistance. And so, you know, this requires a willingness to be always learning and to trust that we can learn from one another. And so, you know, how do we do this? I mean, clearly... And we have to do something with our children in order to, you know, create the next leaders. Um, but even our politicians do not do this. Um, you know, I, I remember that um, when Ted Kennedy died, Senator Ted Kennedy, um, the Republican Senator Orrin Hatch said, um, "Day I lost a treasured friend," and mm-hmm. described. Kennedy as a great elder statesman who, you know, lived and breathed what he believed and indeed was the last great statesman that we had mm-hmm. in our political system. And, you know, that, that was quite a statement. And, you know, for all of, you know, whether your politics are you know, pro or con, what Kennedy was about, or whether, you know, with all of his human flaws, what he did was he was dedicated to the discipline, and he was dedicated to principle, and he was willing to learn. And that has completely disappeared from our uh, governing bodies. And so, you know, I mean, what you're talking about is really that we as citizens cannot depend on our government officials to do this for us, that we need to take responsibility in doing these things for ourselves. Um, do you see that this can happen ex- in an expedient way, fast enough um, to, I, I, you know, to be dramatic, to save us you know, from ourselves? Yeah, I, I mean, I want to challenge a little bit of something you said, which is that, you know, I think overstating the extent to which, you know, our leaders are not willing to learn and open and grow. And I think that, I think mm-hmm. that there has been some shrinking of the attention, and there's also been a, a balkanization into different little media hubs, and so become self-referential, and you're not really listening to the other side the way that used to be more um, imposed, actually, by having a kind of more unified media and just having a three, yes. you know, three or four major channels. Yes. Um, so uh, I think that we don't want to overstate the case, but I think that because of certain forces, and now it's, it's more less, it's, it's more forced, it's, it's up to us to choose it rather than it's enforced by the culture in certain ways. And so that's why we have to take it on as a conscious practice. I think the reason we do it, it can be very self, self-focused self as well, because a lot of times um, we're just simply better leaders and more successful the more, uh, the more 
evolved we are. The more information we have, the more perspectives we can hold. It's, we're going to be more successful. And if I hadn't done all the different things I'd done, it's like I wouldn't have been able to grow a, a substantial company with 50, with 50 or so team members and global reach of, you know, 140 countries. It right. really is required this constant openness to new, new perspectives and new growth. So, you know, we can, we can entrench. But the world is changing faster and faster. So if we if we do that and just entrench in the old, it's like we're going to get left behind in different ways. And most people do have an aspiration to succeed. And so if they really get that, the only way you're going to succeed is to stay on the learning curve. Now, it's not we're no longer living in an era where you can just go to be school and be done, and then that's it. It's like you got to keep on the learning curve and growing and expand your skill set, or you get left behind. And um, you can complain about it and fetch about it to other people, but ultimately, you know, if you don't if you don't stay on that learning curve, you're you're just not going to succeed, and uh, at the same level at least. So, so you know, it makes me wonder about um, how we can use the younger generation to influence um, the larger population. You know, an example of that is something kind of when there is a water shortage and young kids in elementary school were learning that there was a water shortage and you could do things like turn the water off when you are brushing your teeth. Don't let it run down the drain. And they would actually start saying to their parents, Mom, turn the water off. You're wasting water. And so it was actually coming from the children so are there things that we can be doing to teach the children to be um, a little bit, uh, you know, shifting their viewpoint about what's going on versus simply you know, repeating what their parents say? Yeah. Well, I think in one chapter in the book on education, I focus particularly on social and emotional intelligence. There's a lot more research now about how important that is for Kids, uh, kids' development and future success, as well as, well as ability to navigate conflict, and and yeah. so there's a lot of great programs that have emerged to bring more of a toolbox or a toolkit approach to kids at a young age to be able to navigate their emotions, navigate the complexities of relationships in a deeper way, and uh, if we build more and more of those programs in and help to address the culture. I think the, the culture that can sometimes get very separative and clicky and, and sometimes bullying culture. Yeah. Um, so, so those kind of foundational things, if we address those fairly early and build those into how, um, how we train, educate our kids, I think that it's very complementary to the more traditional forms of more intellectual uh, preparation that we do and, mm. uh, and is ultimately going to create more success long-term. So, and then that comes back to, to the home, and if the kids are actually more skilled in navigating the complexities of human dynamics and emotional reaction, that's ultimately going to feed back to the parents. I'm a big advocate. I think it's great to do more ecological um, stuff for kids and to be, bring more awareness in different arenas, but I think the social and emotional intelligence is actually something that can be a, a very easy right-left bridge. It's not parked in one domain or the other right now. It's, right, it's something right. that uh, people recognize that, yeah, the EQ, uh, as people like to say, is, you know, there's good research now that emotional intelligence has a big predictive effect on your future success and that that ought to be something we're teaching at a young age. And that also tends to keep people more fluid because they're more curious about others. And yes. You don't see others as a threat, then you're more curious about them and then you're more willing to grow and learn from them too. Well, I know that people are going to be 
extremely curious about your book and the work you're doing, Stephen, and we've come to the end of our show. So tell people how they can reach you and learn more about what you're doing. Great. So sacredamerica.net is the best place to get the book. You can buy it through Amazon, but when you go there, you also get access to this whole American Evolution series, which is fantastic with people like Marianne Williamson and Greg Braden and Mm -hmm. got all kinds of cool leaders who are talking about how to create a next American evolution. That's one of my core theses that we don't need a revolution. We need an American evolution and everyone's invited, but we have to just operate with higher principles. Also, theshiftnetwork.com is where you can find, get on the, the Shift Network mailing list. We do a lot of growth-oriented pro, growth personal, personal growth-oriented programs as well as collective change programs. And, um, yeah, those are the two best places to get involved. And I would just say keep doing the inner work of growth and, and expanding more of our potential. Get aligned with your higher mission and take, uh, take your responsibility your responsibility as a citizen seriously and integrate that. When you do, it actually opens the doorway to lots of other connections with people too, and it can enhance whatever your primary leadership is, whether that's business, you know, probably for a lot of folks on your show, it's a business leadership, but getting engaged some on the political front also opens up a different channel of leadership dynamics for the world, which also, you know, I've, I've been very blessed by just getting this book out there and traveling around. It's opened up doors to all kinds of people that can also enhance the, the leadership I do with my company. Well, I am so privileged to have had you here. I know our listeners are just delighted to see a leader who has demonstrated the courage to step out and say, let's be different. Let's take responsibility for our future and, you know, improve ourselves in the meantime and and live those principles, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here on Leading Conversations today, and we look forward to knowing more about your work. It's been a pleasure and honor. Thanks so much, Cheryl. We've been speaking to Stephen Dynan today, the author of Sacred America, sacred world, fulfilling our mission in service to all. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.